0: Tonight on Banfield, the Idaho quadruple murder mystery, day 37. What could new investigators possibly still need to see at the crime scene today? Or test? Or maybe photograph or confiscate? Yet another team paid yet another visit there today, only this time they came loaded with gear we haven't seen before. And we've got the video you won't see anywhere else either. Also ahead, is the lead investigator on the Idaho murder case up for the task? He was their rookie of the year just two years ago, and he has only been a corporal for one year. Should that matter? Does that matter? Also, did Moscow police actually see the mysterious Hyundai speed towards the murder scene near the time of the killings? It is possible their body cams did. And tonight, you'll meet the YouTuber who literally put the pieces together to come up with a dazzling clue. And then, tracking the killer by getting inside their head. How would the killer behave today? Paranoid and withdrawn, or bold and assertive? Maybe even reckless? Tonight, the former head of the FBI's behavioral analysis program shows us how to spot a killer hiding in plain sight. And later, a never-before-seen look at the killer's possible escape route. News Nation's Brian Enton will climb behind the wheel and retrace the path the killer may have taken after the bloody murders. Which way did he go? How long did it take? You'll find out tonight on this special edition of Banfield. Hello and welcome to our special report on the University of Idaho quadruple murders. We have some breaking news for you tonight. 37 days into this murder case and something happened today that we haven't seen in a while. It's this. That dark house on King Road that played witness to the worst murder case the University of Idaho has ever seen. It lit up again. The investigators were back inside today. And in this exclusive News Nation video, our Brian Enton was there as two agents returned to the scene. Only this time... They were not wearing protective clothing. They had no protective boots as they walked in that front door. Instead, it looked as though they might actually have professional camera equipment in that case. Also, another small detail today that might have gone unnoticed towards the bottom of a recent press release. It confirmed something that happened the morning of the murder. The two surviving roommates who had unsuccessfully tried to wake one of the victims apparently did that on the second floor. So it was either Zanna or her boyfriend Ethan in that second floor bedroom on the right-hand side of the house. Those were the roommates apparently trying to wake them up. Um, when they feared that either Zanna or Ethan was passed out, the roommates called some friends over to help out and ultimately called police about an unconscious person. And we now know when the police arrived, they likely breached that door and discovered the students were dead inside the room it's also likely that the police then made their way upstairs to discover kaylee and maddie were dead as well and then also today a dust-up over the leadership of the quadruple murder investigation the lawyer for kaylee Gonzalez's family said on this program last night that he believed the person in charge of the entire moscow police quadruple murder investigation is a rookie on the force the lawyer said that he thought he'd been with the Moscow PD just two years. We tried multiple times to get confirmation of that today, calling numerous times to three different phone numbers. Response was always the same. you reached the Moscow Homicide
1: Media Line.
0: Voicemail over and over. So we emailed and we texted several times as well. And finally, we did get this answer about two hours ago. Quote, the Moscow Police Department will not release names of investigators associated with this investigation. The number of years stated is incorrect. Okay, well, that's a little bit helpful. So after a little bit of digging, we found something else. We found a police department annual report listing a Corporal Brett Payne, that's who the family lawyer says identified himself in a meeting running the investigation, he said. Uh, Corporal Payne has been on the force for four years. And he was a rookie of the year two years ago, according to that report. And perhaps in response to this criticism, the police chief released yet another do-it-yourself video, no reporters allowed, no direct answers to the issue of perhaps a novice being in charge of this case.
2: Now, there's been some questions about the leadership in this investigation. What I want people to know is this is a Moscow Police Department investigation. We're utilizing the resources of the FBI and the state police, um, but we pick the investigators. Um, my command team oversees this. We have 94 years of experience um, between us and we're going to continue to work this case. We're going to continue to um, work it to the completion.
0: We also have a curious new update on that white Hyundai Elantra that the police have been chasing down. No, they haven't found it yet, but cyber sleuths found one in Oregon, smashed up on the side of the road. Many had speculated that that white Elantra, that's missing its front bumper and license plates are torn off, uh, that maybe this one was connected to the Moscow case. We have a full update on that car and what police in both Oregon and Idaho are saying about it. And that's just a moment from now. First, though, I want to get right out to Brian Enton. He joins us live with more on the two mysterious agents who showed up at the scene of the crime today. And today we uh, see you at the police department. So get us up to speed on what the police were up to.
1: Yeah, we're outside the police department, Ashley. It's a snowy night here in Moscow. We're told that in an upstairs room uh, of the police department here, uh, investigators pretty much work around the clock. They've almost got a command center up there uh, where they're working the case. And there hasn't been much activity at the house in a week or so until this morning. Very interesting. Uh, two uh, investigators showed up, uh, went inside with what looked like a black plastic bag almost like a pelican case uh, we tried to talk to them uh, as they came out take a listen sir can you can you tell us what you were looking for while you were back at the house do you know anything about the hyundai elantra found in oregon So you can see there, they didn't say anything. They walked to a, um, a car, an unmarked car, uh, and drove off. They were in the house for just 20 minutes. Uh, we timed it, went in with that uh, black bag, and then left with that black bag uh, and, and didn't say a word.
0: That's super interesting. Um, no idea, like, of course, no insignia anywhere. The car was unmarked. Uh, I get why they don't talk to us on the scene. That makes perfect sense. They... They're doing their job. They want to get in and get out and get their stuff back to wherever they're going to, you know, process it. But they came back like an hour later. What was that about?
1: Yeah, I also didn't expect them to answer questions. You just never know. I mean, I obviously had to ask. Um, by yeah. the way, I went up behind the house um, and while they were in there, and we did see them moving around. It was hard to see in the day. It's much easier to see in at night. But we did see them moving around a little bit on the second floor. But you mentioned it. It was interesting. So, so once they left, we thought they were done. One of the investigators came back um, just a short time later, maybe a half an hour later, uh, and went back into the house by himself, um, just for like maybe three minutes, came back out, talked to the security guard, uh, and then he left. It almost seemed like maybe he forgot something or just wanted to check one more thing because it was the second trip was a very, very quick trip.
0: It's interesting. When you say you walked to the back of the house and you could see through the windows that they were moving about on the second floor, my guess is that you would be looking through the only windows that you can you know see through from the back would be the kitchen area, or that second bedroom that faces out back that we keep thinking was an unoccupied bedroom, although I'm really starting to rethink that somewhat, given the video that we saw last night on September 1st, it, it appeared when they peered through the bottom basement uh, bedroom on the right-hand side of the house that it hadn't been moved into. I am seeing a little bit of chatter. It's possible one of the roommates actually showed up after Labor Day, but, but basically that's where you would have seen them moving about, right, Brian?
1: Yeah, I think it was in the bedroom is what it appeared to me. And again, th- during the day when they're in the house, you can't see very well. And there were some curtains that were closed. They were only opened about like this much. Um, so all we could kind of see is quickly their bodies moving back and forth. We couldn't tell what they were doing inside uh, or, you know, what kind of tools they had that they brought in in that bag or if they actually put anything in the bag uh, to take with them.
0: So the Pelican case, um, you know, oftentimes as journalists, our camera crew will carry all their uh, camera gear because it's very protective. Did it feel like there might be camera gear? Because there's a whole bunch of new FBI agents, 14 of them, I think, who have joined the case just in the last few days. And they would need to get a real, you know, view of that uh, of that house if they can't go in there themselves.
1: Well, we know that initially, you remember, Ashley, they said this, the police, that they did the, the 3D imaging of the house that literally apparently captures every corner and measurements. Um, so you'd think they'd have every kind of image that they would need at this point. I mean, remember all the pictures they were taking in the beginning? I talked to a couple people who used to work um, crime scene tech and also FBI, who said that that bag looks pretty typical of uh, of a bag that you would carry in and has tools inside to gather different kinds of evidence, whether it be to gather hairs or, you know, someone described to me there's even a tool that they use as almost like a vacuum that you can get certain particles in. Uh, so so to people who, uh, who are familiar with the, that bag, uh, apparently it's often used to, to uh, have the tools inside where you would do some evidence collection
0: but no booties and no protective. like i feel as though the evidence collection phase is long over we're in week six and and we saw um, you were off for a couple days nancy lou stepped in and all of a sudden five cowboys showed up uh, again plain clothes looking like they were maybe fbi field office agents um, they sure didn't look like Moscow pd they didn't have protective gear on either uh, it felt like they were doing a look-see. Again, it was about the same, uh, Brian, about 30 minutes or so to get familiar. I, I mean, I can only imagine if you're an agent who's coming onto this for the first time, you'd want the inspiration of being right there. But, but who knows? It could have been anything. Question for you. Yesterday, we had the information from the police that it was 10,000 now was the number of tips that, they, that they've had. Now we have the breakdown. It's 7,650 email tips, uh, 4,313 phone tips, 4,583 digital media submissions, and that they've conducted over 250 interviews. Now, that's a bigger number of interviews than we saw before, but I don't know. Have you seen any of the interviewing going on around town? Have you been able to witness any of that? And why does it feel like despite the numbers getting bigger, we don't get any further than White Elantra?
1: Well, you know, to me, the number that stood out the most in all of that was the interviews, because the tips you would sort of expect, there's tips coming in from all over the country, but 250 interviews, I mean, think about that, 250 people that they've interviewed um, is a very big number, and I would imagine that is because of all of these college students. Think of all the people that have been at the parties, all the people at the frat party uh, the night uh, before the killings at Sigma Chi, um, you know, the other places, everybody out near the food truck, um, everybody in the corner club. Um, so, so when you think more about that 250 number, um, it, it does make sense. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of kids at these places that they likely have, have talked to.
0: And I'm just thinking about former tenants in that house who may have left some fibers or hair or DNA behind. And eventually they're going to have to be questioned. And people who say, I was never in that house. Well, if you find something of theirs in that house, then you've got that, you know, locked in and on the record. So that's a lot of interviews. Brian, thank you. I do have more questions for you in a little bit. Um, so you're going to come back as well later in the show. And you're going to take us on the drive that it's possible the killer might have taken to get out of town. So can you stick around and we'll come back to you in a bit?
1: Yeah, you got it.
0: All right. Brian Enton, thank you for that. That white Hyundai Elantra is still the focus of this investigation. Who was in it? What did they see? Where did they go? It's critical information, according to the police, and they still need the public's help. For better or for worse, the mystery of that car has online sleuths working overtime to try to track down answers. And one of those folks is Chris Hall. He's the host of the Mob Crew on YouTube. Hall was able to triangulate the time and the place that a video camera on Linda Lane, right there, pointing, that big arrow is pointing right to it, that um, that video camera captured the white Elantra traveling just east of the murder scene. The owner of that footage confirmed to News Nation that the video shows a white or a light color car heading west, that's to the left of your screen, um, on Taylor, and it's also towards the student's house because you would curve around and down to the bottom of your screen and up to the, to the student's house there. So that all happened between 2.45 and 3.15 a.m. He also confirmed um, police have seen that video. So there, they've got it, they know about it. And then Chris Hall zeroed in on another set of video cameras. The police body cam videos from a nearby underage drinking incident on a school field. The field is located along Taylor Avenue and Chris Hall was able to see in the background of the police body cam that yes, a car indeed drove right past those officers. Look at those headlights. That was 2:58 a.m. Now of course, looking at it from here, it's really hard to tell what kind of car that is. It's in the dark, right? But Chris was able to zero in on it and then overlay a white Hyundai, an Elantra, and overlay it onto the car in question. And when you see that happen, you can judge for yourself whether or not you think this is a good match, whether this might be exactly the, the same car. Joining me now is Chris Hall himself. Chris, thanks for being on the program. So, What was your reaction when you put two and two together? And you ultimately put that overlay on top of the car that was speeding past the 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 drinking incident
3: uh yeah i was kind of excited um the fact that this car was uh driving at 258 which is from according to the december 16 document that says that this car was spotted between 245 and 315 and here comes this car driving by at 258 uh and it's hard to tell the color but as it's passing by towards the end, you've got the headlights of the officer's car facing east, and you can kind of get a de- kind of get an idea that it might be a white car or at least a light colored car. So it's a good possibility that may be the car because that is right in the middle of that time frame.
0: It does look like a light car that- that's for sure. You actually were able to kind of assess the grill. And the lights when you did the overlay, what was your assessment of that? Did, did they look like a match?
3: I can't say a hundred percent. I'm no a car expert, but I would say it's pretty close. Um, I'm still doing some more research on it, but it definitely is uh, a pretty close match for sure.
0: So, now what other clues? Because this is like. This is this new age we live in, right? So many interesting clues come from the cyber sleuth community. In fact, I, I have seen a serial killer tracked down by the cyber community before the police were able to. So um, I understand there's a lot of crazy stuff out there as well. But what other stuff have you been able to sort of look at and give a second glance to?
3: Uh, like the grub truck video, I've been kind of dissecting that, uh, you know, get some more context to what's being said in the grub truck video. It's it's hard to hear what's being said. But there's a few things, because uh, obviously there was kind of an altercation at the corner club bar. And then you've got Hoodie Guy and the Tan Hat Guy there as well. But it seems like there's a, a little short interaction towards the end, just before the girls leave, where they kind of point towards... That their direction and say a few certain words. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 really cool to, you know, go back and uh, reassess. And you, every time you look at the video, you figure out something new that you didn't see the first time. And that's, that's what's amazing about having, you know, cybersleuths looking into this kind of stuff.
0: It's a lot of eyeballs. It's a lot of eyeballs. And, of course, there's a lot of video to look at as well. So it can be helpful. It can be hurtful. I totally get it. But, boy, that was fascinating to see that that car overlay chris hall thank you for being on the show appreciate it
3: thank you so much
0: i want to bring in lauren patterson now she's a reporter for northwest public broadcasting and spokane public radio she's also a moscow resident lauren thanks for being on so i wanted to ask you a little bit about uh the national spotlight that, that's on moscow right now Ugh, we're in week six and that's a small town and one week of all of this would have been overwhelming as we get into week six as the kids have mostly gone home for the holidays What's happening there now? Because the investigation is still, you know, at, at top speed. Ashley,
4: people want resolution. There's this sense of unpredictability that makes it hard to get back to normal. It's just a bad vibe in Moscow. Downtown is quiet. People are on edge. This is a rural town. People are locking their doors. They're carrying guns. And I don't think this cloud is going to lift until we have closure. Recently, the University of Idaho announced that a students are still afraid to return to the area to look at registering for online classes next semester. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Let me ask you about a report um, that I know you got. Um, obviously, you're local, so you're able to talk to a lot of people who would, would trust you. you. you're part of the, you're part of the, the tribe. But this is distressing to hear that some of the reporters that have come in, not Brian Enton and not his producers, he operates in an extraordinarily professional way and know it because they've seen it. But some of the other networks have been um, pretty aggressive in using tactics that might be considered almost illegal. What have you heard from people?
4: Well, they're popping into businesses. They're asking for footage. You know, they're still hanging around. I did talk to one U of I student who's actually one of the neighbors of the victims who said the press is camped outside her apartment, which makes it really hard to leave, get to class, even grieve. So it's just interesting. We're not, we're a small town. We're not used to this kind of attention and being in the spotlight, you know, really even international headlines. It's been really wild. Let me,
0: let me get clarity, though, because it's one thing for a reporter to show an ID and say, I'm with the press and I'd love to ask questions, and then the person can either say yes or no, but it's another to be aggressive and show a badge almost as though you're law enforcement. Am I getting a feel that that's happening from some of the press there, that they're almost hoodwinking some of the local businesses to, to cough up video when they think it might be the police asking?
4: I mean, I did have a friend who works at a local pharmacy who had a reporter from a major network come in. They bought some Tums, they flashed their press badge, and they asked if they had any cameras facing the highway. but. It's sort of interesting because we're not law enforcement. We don't have warrants. People don't have to give us that information. People don't even have to interview with us at all. So it really comes down to the person and what they feel comfortable asking. But just for any reporters out there, just remember, if it's a healthcare facility, that's a HIPAA violation. They can't give you any video. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, and also it, you have to make it really clear. Um, and I've seen Brian and his producers at work and they're very, very clear. We work for News Nation. We'd love to see if you have anything that might help us understand what's been happening. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you know hoodwinking people into thinking that they have to give you the video is an entirely different uh, kettle of fish altogether let's talk a little bit about the um the cyber sleuthing like i just talked to chris hall he did something very interesting that you know just showed us that this could be the car but other people have been a- much more cruel uh doxing people putting their names and pictures out there it, it felt like it was running amok is it getting any better
4: uh, Moscow PD, they used to have an entire section in the press releases, if you remember, titled Rumor Control, where they were trying to address it. But when I talked to the Moscow PD public information officer, Robbie Johnson, last Wednesday, she said law enforcement just cannot keep up with the speculation and rumors. They'd rather spend energy on the case. So they've stopped trying to address the rumors and speculation altogether. They are concerned about the doxing and harassment. They want to
0: remind people that Internet sleuths mm-hmm. could face criminal charges for harassment harassment, or doxing if it crosses a line. Good reminder. Very good reminder. Lauren Patterson, thank you. Appreciate your help. Thanks for having me. Still to come, that mysterious white Hyundai Elantra and a car just like it. Well, kind of. It was in this condition. Smashed up on the side of the road. Plates gone. Owner nowhere in sight. Is it connected to the murders? What do police know? What are they prepared to share? When we come back, Moscow police weighing in on a lead that lit up the internet. That's next. Roughly 450 miles from Moscow, Idaho, a little over a month after the murders, somebody called 911 to report a person sleeping in an abandoned car in Eugene, Oregon. That really probably doesn't sound like a whole lot, but what the Oregon police found when they arrived on the scene was indeed a little curious. A homeless person was asleep in a car that was wrecked out on the side of the road. Take a look at it. Front end, heavily damaged, bumper just hanging on by a thread, broken glass everywhere. They couldn't really learn much more than that because the car didn't have any license plates on it either. That's weird. So what did the Oregon police do? They called the police in Moscow, Idaho. Of course. Just one state over, but an eight-hour drive away. And they called the Moscow police because... The car they discovered with the homeless man sleeping inside. You guessed it. You saw it. It was a white Hyundai Elantra. That's weird. A car that police, as you well know at this point, believe was in the immediate area of the student murders and whose occupants may have critical information. So, as you can also imagine, the Internet absolutely lit up like a Christmas tree, people speculating that this Elantra may indeed hold all the answers as to what happened on King Road in Moscow. Finally today, a little bit of clarity. Moscow police told NewsNation they were investigating the smashed car in Eugene, Oregon. And a short time ago, they gave us an update. But it is sadly another dead end to all of this. Investigators say the car is registered in Colorado and they've spoken to the owner and that she is, quote, not believed to have any relation to any property in Moscow, Idaho, or the ongoing murder investigations. So where does that leave us? I want to bring in Phil Waters. He's a former homicide detective with the Houston Police Department who's investigated over 400 murder cases. And Mike King is a 28-year law enforcement veteran and a former director of a National Cold Case Foundation. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Phil, I'll start with you. Wow, I'm not going to lie. I thought that was it. What are the odds an Elantra wrecked out sitting there for days on the side of the road without the license plates and yet nothing? Should that be dismissed so quickly?
2: Well, I don't think anybody's dismissing anything. And thank you for having me back, Ashley. I appreciate it. Um, the fact that they got on this thing as quickly as a tribute to the fact that they put this information out, the Moscow PD put it out. And so now we have something tangible that has been discovered Unfortunately, as you said, it turns out that it was uh, explained as to why that car was sitting there, who owned it, what the circumstances were surrounding it, uh, the fact that the license plate on it, uh, kind of a weird deal, of course, but it looks to be fresh damage, so the person got rid of the license plates or took the license plates off of it, and all they got to do is run the VIN number, and, and you're good, so...
0: And you're good. All right. So, Mike, uh, you know, you've got 23 years as a homicide detective. Can you explain to me why on day 37, two more guys would show up with a Pelican case? Um, a, why now? Uh, B, what's in the case? And I know you may not be able to, but you know more than I do.
5: Yeah, I, well, I, I, and Phil will probably back me up on this, but I've never had a case, Ashley, that I didn't wish I could go back to the crime scene. And so that's one of the, I think, fortunate parts about this particular case is they've maintained custody of that crime scene so they can go back and look at things. And frankly, when when new information comes out as pieces of information are uncovered, either in interviews or maybe we're getting some interrogations, I don't know. Uh, but during those interviews or just during the course of the investigation, lights turn on and the investigator thinks, oh, if I could just get back and look inside. So seeing something like that is not uh, a sign of something big happening, but it could be just cleaning up, doing a little house cleaning, figuring out a few things that uh, maybe they should have captured the first time that isn't on video or uh, collected forensically.
0: Just fascinating, and I get it. Um, that's probably why they've kept that crime scene that long, and who knows how much longer they'll hold it as well. Okay, so Phil... Uh, earlier to on the newscast, you heard that the family lawyer for Kelly Gonçalves uh, was pretty upset after a meeting uh, i think a day or two ago with the uh, Moscow police, in which the lead investigator identified himself as Corporal Brett Payne, and looking him up, uh, the lawyer thought he'd only been two years on the force, he's only been four years on the force. I will say this about Payne, he's a rock star, 82nd Airborne Division, he's got all these awards and accolades, he's Rookie of the Year, he's got awards, you know, coming out the wazoo even on his four years, but leading an investigation this big, this complicated, this multidimensional, this many level- levels, state, federal, uh, four years enough, or should you have a vet?
2: Well, he may be a vet. When you talk about the Moscow PD, there is, uh, we've said from the beginning that the fact that there's a, uh, it's a small department and a small community, and they have made the right decision early on to ask for the assistance of the state police and the FBI. And so uh, we've marshaled all of those forces in terms of being the lead detective, Moscow PD is the lead agency in this investigation. And therefore, if he is the lead detective in the investigation, he is exactly where he should be.
0: Okay, Mike, I got 10 seconds left. Just to add to that. What are your thoughts? I mean, four years might be veteran, uh, <laughs> you know, but but tell me you two, again, I got 10 seconds.
5: A hundred percent. But the bench is what's important here, Ashley. He's got FBI. He's got state law enforcement. He's got a pretty experienced bench right in the PD with him. And frankly, he might be the just young enough to understand what the psyche was of those kids in that home.
0: Oh, you guys, you've got all the answers. You'll have to come back. Thank you so much. Mike King, Phil Waters. Love to have you.
5: Thanks. It's great to be Thank here. You
0: forensic evidence video surveillance witness statements all big parts of murder investigations but what if the killer holds all the clues and is walking amongst us like a glaring billboard would you know what to look for if you saw the signs could you pick a killer out of a crowd it turns out there are several behaviors and telltale signs that the killer is probably exhibiting as we speak and after the break the former head of the FBI's behavioral analysis program is going to share the techniques that you use to spot a killer. For more than five weeks now, somebody has carried around a terrible secret: that he or she, most likely he, slaughtered four college students in Moscow, Idaho. And that is not an easy thing to hide from friends and family and literally everybody else, every moment of every day. So is it possible that the killer is exhibiting some strange new behaviors these days, giving off telltale signs that would be huge red flags for people who knew what to look for? I'm joined by Robin Dreek. He is a retired FBI special agent and the former head of the Counterintelligence Behavioral Analysis Program. It's the program most often featured on the hit TV series Criminal Minds. So Robin, what should we be looking for if, you know, somebody's behaving differently around us? What kind of signs should be uh, exhibited if someone's committed these heinous acts.
6: Hi, Ashley. You know, it's as simple as really just being present and seeing what deviates from someone's normal behavior. And we've all experienced this. We can always tell when someone's having either a really good day or a really bad day because we pick up a lot of nonverbal cues from these people every single day. The challenge in this situation is more time passes, the likelihood of the personality type starts edging more probably towards psychopathy and a lack of empathy. So we're going to probably pick up on less visual cues than we are, normally would.
0: I'm going to get back to this in a little bit, but not before I ask you, what is happening behind the scenes right now? There's two behavioral analysis unit members that were assigned from the FBI to this case, and it's been two since the get-go, and it's still two today. So what are those two people doing, and what exactly is their work product?
6: The fact that there's two is really good. And the fact that they've been there since the get go is also really good because you want a really consolidated effort of all the information that's coming in. So there's not a miscommunication between a lot of different people. So these two are at the top and at the top, what I mean is there's 60 other individuals associated with the FBI that I saw, and it is an investigative team. And as your last guest was saying, you have the, the younger corporal that's kind of leading the the bench here. And these people are part of that bench. And so these two are, taking in all this information all this data and they're basing it off of their expertise in looking at these heinous crimes as a career and, and trying to match up the intel that's coming in the data that's coming in with their research that on past murders that have been similar ish in the sense of you know quadruple murders and other such things like that
0: so i look at behaviors of like serial killers like btk and Golden State, um, we watched them up close and personal in court, and they couldn't have been more different. BTK was just pompous as hell, so proud, and just seemingly completely unaware of how horrendous he was. I think he just basked in the loveliness of it, even though he had a family, you know, and had mm-hmm. this fake life going on that was so uh, innocent looking. But the Golden State was a former cop who just was stoic and um, obstinate and surly and didn't give up any of the goods. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you get in the head or how do you profile when it looks like they can be so vastly different?
6: It's actually kind of similar in the two in the sense that if you start edging up towards psychopathy like that it's all about grandiosity it's how big they can make themselves look how smarter than everyone else they are and it's a total lack of empathy that they have which makes it really really challenging to see this in a community it's why these things can go on for a while because when someone's not exhibiting a deviation from a standard normal behavior that someone that has committed something like this would generally have that makes it really hard to see and and so that grandiosity starts kicking in and they might want to flourish it they might want to get some sort of psychological reward out of this for themselves to say look at me look what i've done look what i've accomplished look who i'm getting over on this
0: so if i'm the behavioral analysts on this case um how do i distinguish between the possibility that this is a serial killer because that is always a possibility or just someone real angry, an old boyfriend, an old girlfriend, a neighbor who hates noise. Like, how, where do you even begin to find that?
6: First thing you're going to do is try not to have any sort of confirmation bias. So, you don't want to be looking for things to try to prove one thing or disprove another. You're just going to be present and taking as much data as you can from all these different possibilities. And you're just going to. Look for any deviations you can. You're going to look at all the interviews that are being conducted and you're going to assess all these individuals, all the people that have come in and out of everyone's life in the past couple of years, past couple of months, past couple of weeks, see any kind of patterns and deviations from the patterns and just see what's changed from before mm-hmm. to now.
0: It's fascinating stuff. I'm going to have you back. This is conversation is not over. Robin Drake, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. After the break, we go from the who to the where, as in where the killer might have gone after carrying out his sickening deeds. We have been tracking all the information released by the police and uncovered by social media sleuths, including the possible sightings of that white Hyundai Elantra. So Brian Anton has put it all together and he's going to take you on a drive, very possibly the same drive the killer took right after the murders. That's when we come back. For more than five weeks, investigators have said a lot more about what they don't have, what they don't know and still need than what they do know and what they have in the Moscow murder case. But what they have told us reveals some interesting details about where the killer may have gone immediately after the slaughter of those four kids and how they got there. News Nation's Brian Enton has been tracking all of the information. He's back with me live now. So, Brian, we know where the white Hyundai Elantra may have been spotted and where the police have been pulling all the surveillance video. And we also know where they want to collect video. So do we have a good idea of where they think that killer may have fled?
1: We don't know exactly where they think that the killer may have fled. I mean, when when we've called around and figured out where they went and requested surveillance video, it's a wide area. I mean, it's not just one road, but... One thing that I think surprises people over and over again is they think this is like a really rural town. And, yes, it's a small town, but there's a ton of businesses and apartment buildings and dorms and homes. Um, and I think that that shocks people to see just how many people may have had cameras or may have been, you know, out and about. Granted, it was, you know, three in the morning. So, so we took this drive today. Uh, and I think you're going to find it really eye opening. Uh, we're going to show you after the break, Ashley.
0: Yeah, because I tell you what, I got like 30 seconds left, but I, I really wondered if it was an easy escape to, to get out of Dodge. Is it 20 seconds?
1: I think so. I mean, especially at three in the morning, there's a couple different ways you can go. Uh, 95, the main drag in and out of town. I mean, you know, it's not like a big city where you've got to sit at a bunch of traffic lights and wait to get to the highway. Yeah. I mean, you can get right out of here pretty quickly.
0: OK, I can't wait for this. Thank you, Brian. After the break, he's going to take us on that ride the one that starts at the crime scene and heads right out of town. You're going to see all of the things that the killer may have seen on that night and just how long it takes to go from King Road to the open road. You don't want to miss this. Brian's up next. I'm back now live with Brian Enton, who is going to show us how the killer may have escaped the night of the murders. Okay, Brian, how hard is it actually just to get out of town from the murder scene?
1: Not difficult at all, Ashley. I mentioned it. You know, if you live in a big city, you think about how hard it would be to get to the highway and all the stoplights and the stop signs and the people you might see. I mean, here, it's, it's pretty easy to get out of town. It doesn't take that much time. In the past, Ashley, we've shown you what it looks like right around the house, but uh, we went a little farther out to give you uh, some more perspective. Take a look. So this is the house behind me uh, that you've seen so much of. This is the house where the murders uh, happened, crazy that it's now been 37 days. We want to show you what it would be like driving out of here. Uh, keep in mind it's it's light out now, it's snowy, it wasn't snowy uh, when, when the murders happened. We want to show you what it would be like driving out of here. Everything um, on both sides of the car and, and all the chances that the person may have been seen leaving the house. Again, keep in mind, um, different vibe in, in the middle of the night. So. Come down this way, this is a little alleyway in front of the house. Um, you can see there's houses uh, on both sides. Apartment buildings. Scoop between these two cars here. These are reporters. Turn out here. Most of these are students that live in this area. That's the Sigma Chi house uh, right in front of us, Ashley. Um, and then this is Taylor Ave. So we turn on Taylor Ave here, Sigma Chi house. Uh, Band Field, which we've talked about where that body camera video came with, with the, uh, the kids who were drinking. That's Band Field on the left. On the right, look at all these apartment buildings. Um, ton of apartment buildings uh, on the right. Remember, there's one building where, uh, where we found out they, they gave up video. They had a camera um, that was pointing down uh, towards uh, Taylor Ave. More townhouses. Um, the university uh, is on the left. Student housing is on the right. I told you, it's dense over here. I mean, it's not, you know, like a wooded area along these roads. You've got a lot of houses and a lot of students that live in this area. A lot of snow now, too, by the way. Again, remember, it wasn't like this um, when, the, uh, when the murders happened. There wasn't really any snow. There's been so much snow the last couple of days. Gets a little more woodsy, um in this direction as we continue down Taylor Ave. Uh, and then right up here is the intersection with 95, which is sort of the main drag that goes through Moscow. So you've got the 76 gas station and the ANW on the right here. Uh, you remember, we confirmed that police got video from that gas station, busy gas station. And then this is Highway 95, sort of the main drag. If you go right here, uh, it's, it kind of gets rural out there. It goes right outside of town. If you go left, which will go left, I want to show you how much action there is over here. Um, again, busy. More apartments. A camera right there, I noticed, at that apartment building uh, facing the road. Um, and then University of Idaho on the left. Uh, stores, you've got a Pizza Hut here. Um, you've got more uh, student housing here on the right. Uh, and it's busy. I mean, granted, you know, three in the morning it wouldn't be busy down here, but, uh, you know, a lot of stuff going on. And if you keep going straight in this direction, uh, you basically uh, hit downtown, you go through sort of uh, another busy area, and then you would be sort of uh, back on rural highway on the other side. But but uh, this sort of gives you an idea um, of, of what it would be like driving out of that area and just how much there is around. I mean, I know people think that Moscow... Um, you know, small town, and it is, but but it's it's packed in here it's dense apartment buildings, um, houses, businesses, uh, and, and a number of cameras that do point the roads uh, point at the roads. So uh, an interesting look, hopefully that that sheds some perspective. I, and obviously we don't know which way the killer went if he went in that direction. Uh, I think a, a big difference maker would be if he made a right at that gas station the way we didn't go, Ashley, it gets very rural very quickly. Um, there's a school out there, like a, like an elementary school, but not a lot of cameras, not a lot of houses, not a lot of businesses. The way we went to the left, though, that would mean um, the killer went right, went right through town.
0: Oh, so fascinating. I mean, I had no idea. That took... Three minutes and 40 seconds for you to get from the scene of the murder. Basically, you could have been headed out of town. That was so quick, and I didn't realize it was that compact. I only have about 20 seconds left here, but that camera on Taylor in 95, I can only assume the police got that because that would have shown anybody getting off Taylor.
1: Yeah, there was one camera I didn't spot until today when we were driving by. At, there was one at the um, like apartment buildings right there down on 95 that looked like it was pointing right at the roadway. Um, so I think Amazing. by this point, police have said that they've re- they've gotten most of the cameras. Um, so, you know, hopefully that'll that'll shed some light.
0: I wish they'd show us the actual Elantra on the real video yeah. It would be helpful for everybody to say. I might have seen that. But Brian Enton, just so enlightening. Thank you so much for doing that. Really appreciate it. Brian's, of course, going to be back tomorrow night. He's working this case every single day. We'll be back again tomorrow night, 10, 9 central. In the meantime, stay tuned for Cuomo. He's up next.